Hello everyone and welcome to episode 8 of season 2 of Ignite the Flame Audio. Those of you who are just joining us, I would encourage you to go back to episode 1 of season 2. Those of you who are new to Ignite the Flame Audio, first of all, welcome. Great to have you here. But I would encourage you to go all the way back to the first episode of season 1, just so the books that are being read to you make chronological sense. For those of you who are here all the time, welcome to you. By this point, you know how we roll, where we have a reading of a chapter, in this case being chapter 8. Then we go into the origin of ideas section, the tips of the trade section. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow, Chapter 8. One must become fear. Mr. Sedgwick had escaped me due to what little humanity I had left, but the war was not won, only the battle lost. It was time to return to McCline with my findings and gain his intentions as to what occurred next. Passing the water fountain, I run my hand across its surface, disturbing the reflections within, only to see Nightshade pass me by, not even noticing I had been there, so close to her and yet so far away. Walking toward the streets of black and disease, I stroll in ignorance, with my heart set upon finding where Sedgwick had disappeared to. The fear had been taken from all who witnessed me, and now it was only looks of discouragement that was obvious. Keep moving, Doctor. There's no cure for this street. The members flay out of me, accompanied with drunken anger and bitterness of the justice which I served. How different it would be if possessed by another. Upon entering a public monument of marble and arches of granite, with a horseman atop its grand structure, I see a figure leant up against the wall, smoking a pipe and hat tilted toward the ground, hiding all from my sight, which was already impartial. Well, doctor, what have you found? McCline reveals himself from the shadows, and displays his freshly trimmed facial hair, caressing each part of his moustache with his hands, twiddling it through his fingers. Well, sergeant... I'm afraid I've lost the lead on Mr. Sedgwick. I found a blueprint for an engine, however, made by Angus Hart, indicating possible motive for murder. But the business venture was already denied by Mr. Sedgwick on a previous occasion. Perhaps the business was a smaller gain with the two of them involved? You mean Mr. Sedgwick stood to gain from his partner's death? Indeed, Doctor. Perhaps a large amount of the business. What was the venture? the East India Trading Company. You see, that is one of the most profitable of organisations within the British Empire, which means Sedgwick had an awful lot to stand to gain in murdering his partner. Well, the motive is secure. Others. See what you can find, Doctor. Have you heard any more of the inside agent? He lures me further into the shadows, enticing me to conceal our presence in discussion. I have a lead, but I thought it best to let other authorities handle the situation. A wise decision, Doctor. These matters must be handled with care, and the authorities will know how to cover up the fallout when it all rises to the surface. Almost relieved by the response, I know I have McCline in the dark, for I did not know of his allegiance either. So being cautious was my first course of action toward any of them. Very well. What do you propose next? McCline asks, eager for my intention to relieve him of responsibility once more. I will head to the residence of Mrs. Amers, and see if I can determine why she was present at Angus' house the night of the murder. Very good, Doctor. Whilst you proceed, 
I'll search Sedgwick's house and see if I can obtain those blueprints as evidence, just in case he is our killer. Very well, sir. It will be behind the bear's head, facing you as you walk through the door. The safe is simple to crack. 47, 92, 86, 13. Okay? And the blueprints will be inside. Very resourceful, Doctor. You may make detective yet. Very well. We will obtain that, and you head on to Mrs. Amers, all right? And Doctor, nice work. McLean smiles through his pipe, and turns to our success as if to be further ahead than Inspector Moore, despite my apparent lack of evidence. Moments later, passing through streets and alleyways, filled with excitement and promise, as the school had finished for the day. Children burst from its doors with a mixture of heights and builds, leaving large minds, or marks of bravery, to the teacher's cane. A cruel existence was this one, but it molded them for the world ahead. May there never come a day we lose the chance to discipline our children, craft them better than we were. They stumble past each other, racing for first place, home to a meal, which would barely fill them, their stomachs still crying for more, which then promoted thievery and trade, a profession Blackstreet thrived upon. Passing the gates, it resembles a fine establishment, and to my surprise, the residence of Mrs. Amers lies just next door. It has a quaint appearance, and small roof sandwiched between the gateposts and accompanying house, barely leaving enough room to ascend the staircase. The walls of cream and white flecks with brickwork and timber combined as the foundations for this place of home. A small walkway leading to the door with several plants lining one side toward the school, welcoming nature into this urban landscape. The door of white timber and brass handle appears as royalty, with its ornate carvings depicting that of what appeared to be an hourglass. I knock on the door and wait, but it is seconds before she arrives to answer it, clothed in a black and white dress of long satin, ribbons fastened around her neck and waist with white collar and black buttons lining the arms. Her hair is an auburn color with bonnet atop, face of porcelain and lips of rouge. Her eyes are a thick brown and defined character of figure, with almost that of an insect, possibly the effect of wearing a corset for some years. The dress ends at the feet and reveals the tiniest of shoes with a black, polished appearance. Hello. May I help you, Doctor? Yes. Mrs. Amers, I presume. Yes. You presume correctly. I am Dr. Lantern. I am helping in a police investigation into the murder of Angus Hard. Would it be all right to ask you a few questions? Of course. Please, won't you come in? Thank you. I remove my top hat and gloves, placing them on a hanging arm so as to present myself tidy. Please, have a seat, and I'll be right with you. She removes her bonnet and begins to fix her hair with various pins and ribbons, perhaps planning to leave, which I had now disturbed. I will be brief, as I can tell you are needed elsewhere. I simply need to know where you were the night of the murder. 10.30 p.m., to be precise. Let's see. I was at Angus' residence playing cards with Roger. Well, Mr. Sedgwick, and another man. I had no idea who he was at the time. I now know he is a partner of the East India Trading Company. A Mr... Biggs. Yes, that's it. Strange fellow, with eyes that saw right through me. Most unnerving, I must say. And were you there out of leisure, or personal invitation? Personal. Angus and I were children together back in school. Friends for life, you might say. But lately we'd grown distant. Something in him changed. He'd lost that sense of adventure about him almost as if his wings were tethered to a post. 
never leaving his home, and becoming somewhat of a recluse. I see. When I heard he'd been killed, well, as you can imagine, the very thought was enough to make me wish I had visited him more often. Indeed. Now, Mrs. Amers, think very carefully. Can you recall anything regarding the discussions which took place between yourself, Mr. Sedgwick, and Angus? Not much, I'm afraid. But Mr. Biggs was very talkative, paying me compliments every chance he had, dealing Roger false hands and throwing accusations all night. Meanwhile, Angus just laid there, unaffected despite being the one who invited us. Soon after, he received a letter from his butler, and it was urgent enough for him to dismiss us all before locking us all out on the street, all except that wife of his, late divorced, of course. Did she have blonde hair by any chance? Yes, that's her. A vicious-looking woman, but who am I to judge? What time was this? 10.45pm, or thereabout. Anything else? Well, I wish I could be of more assistance, Doctor, but I'm afraid that is all I can remember. Thank you, Mrs. Amers. You've been most helpful, and if you think of anything else, simply telephone Scotland Yard and ask to speak with Sergeant McCline. Yes, I will. Should I think of more? Well, if you would excuse me, I'll get ready to leave. I'm expected at a meeting in the park with a colleague of mine at exactly 4.30pm, and he will be most upset if I'm late. I understand, and thank you, Mrs. Amers, for all of your help. It is greatly appreciated. Doctor, when you do find Angus Killer, will you allow me to attend his sentence hearing? for I would like justice to be served. Do not fear, Mrs. Amers. You may be needed as a witness, so I may just have further need of you yet. Thank you, Doctor. You are very welcome, Miss Amers. Now, if you would excuse me, I will take my leave of you. Of course. As I collect my belongings, a voice utters, Parting is such sweet sorrow. And I turn to see Mrs. Amers gone, upstairs by the sound of things. Now I was hearing things from him, but one thing was certain. I would need to revisit this house, but not as a doctor, but a Scarcrow. I take my leave, walking toward the street, witnessing the day as it unfolds before me. Carriages taking people to various destinations, their fare paid for and sentenced. Families strolling through the street, the mothers tending their offspring, whilst the fathers strut as peacocks, portraying their natural success. I close my eyes to take it all in and breathe in the intoxicating fumes swirling into my mouth and nose looking as eerie as a mythical dragon, yet shrouded in similar mystery. I return to my place of summons, once again called by my other side to exact justice, through alternate means, but this time it is empty. My ravens are nowhere to be found, and all which is left is an empty cabinet. I frantically begin searching for them, peering under all available hiding places as if a game to them. Suddenly I hear a noise emanating from the lower levels, a catacomb, which was not included in any of the designs, possibly crafted centuries before. I descend the stairs to a dark and dingy pavement of irregular-shaped tiles, depicting a medieval construction of primitive means. My ravens! Flock to me! And upon my call, they cease with noise and gather around, as though I hold their survival in the palm of my hands. What are you doing? Well, no one wishes to share. And where have you taken him? Doctor, we listened to him and brought him here, where it all began, with you and these. A single raven shows me a glass orb of craftsmanship resembling a pumpkin, filled with what appears to be vapor. It swirls and twists, creating faces and figures which have remained ingrained within my memory for years, a glass construct with blackened eyes and three-dimensional shape, equaling that of the pumpkin itself, but only a tenth of the size, minus the stalk, of course. 
there is an orange tinge to the glass, showing expert glass blowing. But which raven was capable of such craft? My mind flashes back to the furnaces, blowing glass at 1700 degrees Celsius, forming them into molds of pumpkin stain and shape, teaching my ravens over the years that followed the same artistic movement. Which of you? We all did, sir. Under his direction, we all made the same. He said we would be of greater use this way. Listen to me. You don't need to prove your worth to me. I took you all in out of what little kindness remains in this frozen and nail-driven heart of mine. Not for what purpose you would serve. We know, Doctor, but we feel that we owe you a debt which can't be replaced. You gave us a home, food, and an education, despite having your own issues. Listen, my master did the same with me, and I owe a debt which can never be repaid, but the difference is I serve regardless of the debt I owe. Understood? I think so, Doctor. Good. Now how many of these wonders have you all made? Ten each, Doctor. You mean to say there are eighty of these wonders? One hundred and twenty, Doctor. Just testing, my ravens. Now back up to the light with you. Your dinner is ready and waiting for you. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. They retreat to the stew I had started to prepare the night previous, almost making me feel as a father despite never being able to have that level of affection for one of my own. My decision to walk this path of righteousness was a lonely trail, but with no more involved, it meant little more could be used against me when the time came to face my enemy. No more pain. No more sorrow. Heaven. I turn the orbs within my hands and gaze at their unique appearance, almost resembling the mask in every minute detail, but surely it did not possess the intelligence to craft such an object. I had to know, as I approach him upon a pedestal of his own making, with a pillar of skulls formed into a cross, with which he sat, overlooking all, approximately six feet tall, almost eye-level. I stare into his eyes and whisper, Did you make these? Of course you did. Well, you listen to me. I am in control, and I command you to leave them alone. They have no part in this, and I will not have you hurting them. And as if to coax them into life, the orbs begin to glow, and the mask reaches to me grasping my neck and placing itself onto my head, enhancing view and shifting voice once more. It had control, but to my surprise, it responds. I know. All I meant was to protect them, as you do. But why waste perfect talent? Look around you. Is it not beautiful? It is enchanting, I will admit. It almost fills this hollow heart of mine. You are in control. You always were. The only reason I tighten with each wearing is fear of losing you to your own abilities, for you are able to survive without me, and that is a truth I have yet to handle. Then why punish? Why torment those around me and leave me to salvage the wreckage as with Charlotte? Afraid of losing you, so I manipulate and control. It is why we may never let anyone close. For fear they be controlled the same. Well, I have accepted this life, but I will not allow any more pain from you any more. Understand? If you wish to manipulate me, then so be it. But it ends when I say it ends. Agreed. And looking up at a fractured shard of glass, the mask's mouth moves separate to my own and utters, Agreed, master. Finally, I regain some form of singularity which was now equally precious as the ravens which lurked above me. 
After turning, I witness an attire resembling a stitched garb with black leather and cotton byweave, displaying my gothic nature. Black waistcoat with brown buttons and tuning a black shirt with ornate cufflinks of pumpkin appearance. The darkest of trousers and shoes with a solid silver pocket watch, all tailored by the ravens as a gift to conceal me from the eyes of the night, whilst enhancing the fear I inspired in my underlings. New gloves to match, incorporating several pressurized chews of varying toxic chemicals and concentrations unthinkable to natural science as I knew it. Gases employed by my former brothers in arms, as if to use their own arsenal against them, fighting flames with a greater and darker fire. As I place them upon my arms, I feel a surge in strength and heightening in ability, even further than at first experienced. I ascend the stairs, each orb adhering to a belt around my waist, covered in chains and shards of metal unknown to me. Twelve of them now surrounded me, acting as concealed light beneath my overcoat, giving my neck and hands an ominous orange glow, appearing quite hypnotizing, I would hazard to guess. My ravens, I am sorry for this life I have bestowed upon you. Give me a chance to make make it right. Of course, Doctor. It is the least we may do. Thank you, my young ones. But it is not the Doctor who asks. You are all so precious to me. Never forget that. All of you have such potential, and will make fine gentlemen someday. Thank you, Scarcrow. Do you wish us to follow? Not this time. Where I go now is too dark to follow. Understand? I will return when the day is young, for night draws near once more, and I may move freely amongst the cloak of darkness. We understand, Scarcrow. Be careful. I will, my ravens. Do not fear. I embrace them all, and send them above, so as they may obtain rest for the night. I wish them no part of this, and once again, to my surprise, Scarcrow began to comply. I begin to ascend the outer stairs to the roof of my asylum, and gaze upon the burning city filled with fire and smog, acting as the perfect veil to hide one's intentions. The roofs all linked as far as the eye could see, allowing for unaltered passage to Mrs. Amers. All I would need was an entrance. As I navigate between rooftops and chimneys, their smell radiating meals of varying orientation and recipe, I continue on, maintaining balance, despite the slant of these tiles. I encounter a lone owl flying through the night once more, looking through me as if to know my every move. Its wings touch the moon with every stroke and reveal its nature by releasing an object above Mrs. Amor's house. Upon closer inspection, it depicts a compass with no dials or face, an object I was all too familiar with. As I open its compartment, all is revealed as though a chapter in one's life had been captured by its grip all its entirety flashing before my eyes, every moment so vivid in the construct and alive with passion, with drama, with memory, as though plucked from the mind of its creator, only to hear the words, a light in the mist, uttered upon its end. My mind throbs from what it has accepted, full to bursting with questions and information. The compass so ornate in design and purpose. I knew it would need to be returned to its owner. When the time came, the pleasure would be all mine. As I stared down at Mrs. Amor's residence and pocketed the compass to my heart, I now ponder what lies beneath me and how I would find the truth without unleashing a darkness. I had only begun to master myself. Mm -hmm.
and welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we take the chapter that's just been read to you and break down the inspirations behind it, basically the ideas that led to the formation of the chapter. So getting started off, we notice that the appearance of Mrs. Amos during this chapter is telling of the time where she's described as having an almost insect-like appearance, and this refers to the specific wasp waist, which is most associated with women of the time, specifically around the Victorian era, but it stems as far back to the 1600s, the Elizabethan era, where you would have women with these specific hourglass shapes. Now, to some extent, it continues on into the modern day, but the majority of the time, especially during the Victorian era, was the implementation of the wearing of a corset. It was almost mandatory for women to have to wear a corset as part of their undergarments. And obviously, the corset's prolonged exposure to wearing them caused the ribs to grow abnormally. And this caused the signature, as we would come to know it, as wasp waste. But obviously, this led to health complications further in life, where you would have the collapsing of, you know, your internals, which was an unfortunate side effect of this sort of forced level of etiquette that was placed on women at the time. But in the description of Mrs. Amos, it just helps to further solidify the fact that that was part of the etiquette of the time. The second point is that we see Dr. Lantern sort of coming into his stride as more of a detective, like the questioning, the methodologies that he's using. You'll notice that in this chapter, his questions are far more inquisitive his questions are sort of he has a goal in mind you know it's it the questions that he's asking are what you would expect a detective to ask now bearing in mind that dr lantern is not officially recognized as a detective even by this point even though he is working on the case it almost comes as second nature to him to ask these questions now this obviously stems from him asking questions in the persona of scarcrow toward the criminally insane that he would otherwise have at his asylum And it's just a way that he's transversing that into his ego as Dr. Lantern. The third point is Dr. Lantern actually starts hearing a voice coming from Scarcrow itself without actually needing the mask or without the the mask being present. And what this tells of is, again, toward the metaphorical sense of what Scarcrow represents, this allure or attraction towards the darker elements within Dr. Lantern. It's almost like he's calling to him from inside his subconscious now. It's not so much personified by a physical object such as the mask, but the actual effect of Scarcrow is now being felt within Dr. Lantern as a character. And this tells of the subconscious attraction within ourselves as people. We have this subconscious attraction to that which is forbidden, something which is considered immoral or illegal or some form of scolded practice, you know, something that is not accepted by the majority of people we as a species are incredibly inquisitive and it's that curiosity it's that wondering what does it feel like to do this what you know does it give you an adrenaline rush or do you get something out of it does it empower you you know these sorts of thoughts and feelings drive us to commit such acts according to psychology and this is a way by which we investigate that by putting it across that Scarcrow is reaching out to Dr. Lantern through his subconscious now. So he's actually starting to feel that pull, even though the physical object is no longer there. So it's almost like getting into the psychology behind addiction and those sorts of ideologies, 
where even though you might not be anywhere near the source of the addiction, there's still this urge to go back to it. Or if you've committed a certain act and it's given you that adrenaline rush, but you know it's wrong, there's something telling you in your subconscious you shouldn't be doing this, but you keep going back to it. You know, it's, it's that subconscious pull, if you will, towards the darker elements in your own life. The fourth point are the pumpkin-shaped glass orbs that are described in the latter part of the chapter. Now, this takes inspiration from Marvel's Spider-Man series. Now, whether you grew up with the comics or whether you, like me, watched the cartoons, you'll be familiar with a couple of Spider-Man's villains, in this case being the Green Goblin and then the Hobgoblin, both of which used characteristic pumpkin bombs. What they were was basically explosive devices or they had gas in them or some of them were, were sonic so they let out sound bursts. Some of them were like flashbangs. But basically, they all had this pumpkin-like appearance. And because Scarecrow embodies the persona of Scarecrow from DC, even though it's from an alternate, you know, a different universe, we sort of incorporated both elements of both universes into this one character. Now, I don't know whether at any point Scarecrow has used pumpkin bombs, but I know that he's always using fear gas. So I thought combining the two into a glass orb was like an interesting way of putting that across because obviously explosive devices weren't really as advanced as they are today back in Victorian era. So it would make more sense to fill a glass orb with a particular gas, which was otherwise harmful to someone, which could then shatter on impact with a wall or a floor and then disperse the gas. That would make more sense. And that's how we represented it in this chapter. The final point is that we see in the latter part of the chapter, right at the very end, that the owl, which Dr. Lantern, as Scarecrow, has encountered before, comes back over the rooftop, but this time drops an item, and it seems to be a compass with no face and no dials. Now, those of you who have read A Light in the Mist, those of you who have listened to season one, you'll recognise that immediately as the calling card for Bloodsnitch, which was the group that Dr. Jekyll was investigating. And basically what happens is Scarecrow picks up this compass, opens it up, and it portrays the entire story of A Light in the Mist to him. Like It's almost like an astral projection, sort of like a holocron from Star Wars. If any of you love Star Wars, you'll know what I mean. It's basically it contains information that is then projected as like a holographic projection. So it's almost like... A, it's like a ghost image, so to speak. And not only does this draw inspiration from Star Wars, but it also draws inspiration from Doctor Who. There's an episode where David Tennant has to mask himself being a Time Lord by putting his memory into a pocket watch whilst an alien race are trying to track him down. For an episode or two, he basically becomes human and he forgets that he's a Time Lord. He forgets that he's the Doctor. And in so doing, he imprisons his memories of being a Time Lord inside this pocket watch. But then as soon as he opens the pocket watch, all of those memories come flooding back. It's almost like he regains his sense of being. And that was sort of a similar effect that we were going for and we continue to go for as these compasses and pocket watches are dispersed throughout the novels. It's sort of a way of catching up the protagonist to the storyline as well as the reader. Okay, so that about sums it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is where we give tips of the trade to those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. 
So today we're going to cover the topic of effective writing. And what I mean by that is how you can use your writing to create simple effects that can otherwise have impacts on the story or your reader. So getting started off, if you're trying to create a sense of tension, so like tension building, what you can do to build suspense or build tension is you can start to shorten your sentences. So for example, if you were to describe someone going up a dark staircase, you might use short sentences to sort of build that tension as they go up that staircase. So the reader doesn't understand what's at the top of that staircase. So what you would do is you would build up to that moment. So you would use a combination of short sentences to sort of build that tension so that it's almost like the reader is forced to take a breath between each sentence. They don't know what's coming next. That leads on to the next point, which is how you can create mystique. Now, whether you're creating mystique about a certain area or a character or some plot in the storyline, it's all about selected information. So what you try to do as a writer is not give everything straight away, lead up to it. The best example that I can think of is H.P. Lovecraft. His entire style of writing is based on this one principle. You don't figure out what is the actual entity that he speaks of, the elder gods that he speaks of in the entire book. You don't know what they look like until the very end of the novel, and that's if he gives you the description. For the majority of the book, your imagination is employed. Your imagination is key, because it's up to your imagination to distort and pervert those words that he gives you, that selected information that he gives you to create the worst possible imaginings that he could otherwise not describe. He leaves it to your imagination so that you create, in theory, a worse monster than he was thinking of, which is really clever. And you can do the same by allowing mystique to come into your writing. So if you're going to describe a character, you only describe very vague features. You might say how tall they are or what colour their eyes may be, but you don't go into too much detail. You leave some of it blank so that it allows the reader to fill in the rest of the gaps. Maybe you'll give it at a later stage, but it just helps to create that sense of mystique about your characters, that sense of what's going on. Is there something further? Is there something deeper within a place or within something that you're describing? Another way you can use your writing to create effects is based on your character's So depending on, this is more toward the dialect or the dialogue that you're using, you can use that to create lovable or undesirable characters. So for instance, if you want a character that by the end of the story, everyone wants them to be gone by the end of the story, basically they they want them to die, then you can use your writing and create simple effects to basically emphasize that point. So for instance, they could be overly arrogant in the words that they say. They could be narcissists. They could be overly evil toward everyone else. You know, you can use simple effects to have a dramatic impact on your readers, whether you're trying to create a protagonist or an antagonist, your good characters or your bad characters. You can use the writing in the dialogue and you can use the writing in the rest of the story as well to mold characters mold their personas so you can use your writing to create heroes anti-heroes vigilantes villains all across that spectrum you can use writing and create simple effects in the sense of what words you choose and it's just another way that you can further develop your writing that leaves a longer lasting impression on your readers 
Okay, that about wraps up for this section. And that's it for episode 8. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. It means the world to us that you would take time out of your otherwise busy schedule to make us a part of your life. I hope you're enjoying the season so far, and I hope you've taken everything you can from it. Of course, we'll leave all the links below, just in case you need access to any information that has come up in the episode. Right now, I just want to take an opportunity to bring to you a project, as we've been promoting all the way through this season, known as Top Dog Studios, which is a painting and mural company run by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young. If you're interested, or if you know anyone who's interested in having their company's brand represented through graphic design or a mural, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios' website. That's www.topdogstudios, all lowercase letters, .co.uk. And there you'll find sections where you can fill in your relevant contact information, tell Callum a little bit about your project. You can tell him your budget and the time in which you want the project completed by. So if you're looking for your brand to be represented in such a way, or if you know someone who wishes their brand to be represented in such a way, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios' website and drop Callum a line, and I'm sure he'll be interested in hearing about your project. Okay, guys, thank you very much again for tuning in. Whatever you're doing today, give it 100%, and no matter what challenge comes against you, just remember you're already prepared to face it. There's nothing that you will come up against that you're not already empowered enough to overcome. Just remember that. Okay, guys, as always, it's been a pleasure. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.